welcome to the Cinephiliac Lounge. I'm Scott Kilroy. And I'm Pat O'Connell. We're two guys who like to talk about movies over a couple of drinks. Today we're talking about the Coen Brothers' second movie, Raising Arizona. Pat, would you like to give us an overview? But first... Son, you got a panty on your head. Just drive fast, eh? The first time I met Ed was in the county lockup in Tempe, Arizona. You're a flower, you are. A day I'll never forget. I do. You bet I do. Okay, then. My lawless years were behind me. Our child-rearing years lay ahead. But <laughs> biology conspired to keep us childless. You go right back up there and get me a toddler. I need a baby hide. I got more than I can handle. At the time, Ed's little plan seemed like the solution to all our problems and the answer to all our prayers. He's beautiful. What? Are you kidding? We got us a family here. I want Nathan Jr. back. What's his name? Ed Jr. Hi, Jr. So far, we've just been using Jr. We call him Jr. He's out there somewhere. Hold on, Nathan. We're gonna go pick up daddy. I'll be taking these huggies and uh, whatever cash you got. <laughs> you busted out of jail. We released Krishaz on our own recognizance. What Double here is trying to say is that we felt the institution no longer had anything to offer us. <gasps> we got a child now. Everything's changed. Yeah! Where's Junior? Who the hell are you? I'm a fan. We're absolutely going to get him back. Just ain't no question about that. Give me that baby, you warthog from hell! And you want to know another thing? I'm going to be a better person from here on out. Let's go get Nathan Jr. Raising Arizona, a comedy beyond belief. Well, it ain't Ozzy and Harriet. Warning, spoilers ahead. Raising Arizona, released in the U.S. on March 17th, 1987. So this year marks its 35th anniversary. This is the second film directed by the Coen brothers, Joel and Ethan Coen, starring Nicolas Cage, Holly Hunter, Trey Wilson, John Goodman, William Forsyth, Sam McMurray, Francis McDormand, Randall Tex Cobb, and T.J. Kuhn as Nathan Jr. Full disclosure to everyone, especially Rex Reed, I was supposed to come up with a synopsis, and I didn't realize I hadn't done so until about 25 minutes ago. But I happened to have the DVD I watched and owned of Raising Arizona, so I thought I would read how they sold it. So this is their synopsis of the film. Nicholas Cage, Holly Hunter, and John Goodman star in Ethan and Joel Coleman's acclaimed screwball love story filled with mad chases, unexpected plot twists, and wild pyrotechnics. Bowing to go straight, a convenience store bandit, Cage, proposes marriage to the police department's photographer, Hunter. All is wedded bliss until they discover she's unable to get pregnant and, she, and are turned down by every adoption agency in town. It doesn't take long before they realize the only solution is to kidnap one of the town's celebrated quintuplets and hit the road. Now, I was with this synopsis up until the very end. If you haven't seen this film, they don't really hit the road. I mean, they they they... they 
go around their area, but this makes it sound like they, they go on a road trip, and that's not what happens. Yeah, that's weird. Okay, so my quick stab at it was the fast-paced and zany farce about an unlikely pair who go to extreme lengths to have a child. When a repeat offender, convenience store bandit H.I. McDonough, falls in love and marries the policeman who usually books him, Ed, short for Edwina, he vows to go straight and start a family. They discover that Ed is infertile and attempts to adopt or denied because of his record. Once the news hits about the Arizona quintuplets born to Florence and Nathan, Arizona, the wealthy owner of a chain of unpainted Arizona furniture stores, they kidnap Nathan Jr., one of the set of the quintuplets. Soon, mayhem ensues around the comedic new nuclear family when they have to contend with two scheming escaped convict buddies that are supposed to be his friends, his conniving, racist, wife-swapping boss, and a bounty hunter from hell who destroys every living thing in his path. Well, all right. I think both sum up the film pretty well. Well, it's just what they did and what I did. Back to back. All right, we got the synopsis. Before we start to dive in, why don't we start with Scott? What are you drinking tonight? Tonight, I'm drinking Maker's Mark 46. And I could tell you a little bit about it. It's supposedly aged a little longer than the normal Maker's Mark. And towards the end of the aging process, they put seared French oak staves in the bourbon. It's 94 proof. It's got a little bit more flavor than a regular Maker's Mark. And I'll give you a taste and a, tell you what I think. Okay. Nose is kind of wheat, cherry, and vanilla. Let's see. On the taste, I get some toasted wood, some more vanilla, a little bit of citrus. And overall, it just tastes like Maker's Mark, but a little stronger. And on the finish, I just get some caramel and more wood. Pat, what are you drinking? Well, I went to the liquor store the other day and I didn't know, I, I didn't research it or try to, I just kind of walked in blind and I picked up Old Forester 100 proof bourbon. I was nice. just drawn to that it's the first bottled bourbon. Some of the things they, they apparently this company was one of the five companies or few companies that have been making bourbon since before prohibition during and after and they had a bunch of different kinds i just went with the regular uh, which as i said i think it's supposed to be i think it's called the old forester signature 100 proof but it just says old forester on the label and let's see looking at the color it looks kind of like a well, looks like a copper i guess um, i'm gonna do with the nose I guess I get like a caramel and uh, maybe cherry. It smells very alcoholy. Let's see. Let try it on the palate. Okay. We got spicy. It's got a spicy oak. Um, definitely get the the caramel. Feels kind of thin. It doesn't feel like a full-bodied bourbon, but and then the finish, it's a hot. It's got like pepper, maybe clove finish to it. Sounds pretty good. Yeah, I'm. I'm forgive me. I'm swilling it now. <laughs> I've had the Old Forster's birthday bourbon, which uh, Virginia gave to me as a gift for, I think, my birthday or possibly some other holiday. And that is excellent, if you ever come across that. It's hard to find. I read about it, and I was like, hmm, 
as I said, when I looked at the company and I saw that, you know, I guess it was sold as they were allowed to continue making the 100 proof bourbon for quote unquote medicinal purposes during prohibition. And they have that. So I'd like that just out of historical curiosity, I, I might want to pick up one of those at some point just to try it. But I did see some reviews on the the birthday bourbon. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. It's uh, good stuff. I definitely want to try Old Forester, the regular expression. It sounds pretty good. So what were you drinking during the movie? I was drinking some hazy IPA. I just grabbed something that I had in my fridge. It was a Brooklyn Pulp Art hazy IPA. So I had a beer. It's pretty good. I enjoyed it. It went well with the film. Nice. What were you drinking? I was back on my Modelo kick. I just find it's price performance-wise, Modelo's like a really good place to be. It's tasty, but it's relatively inexpensive. So I usually have that in the house, and that's what that's what I was drinking. Sounds good. I haven't had one of those in a while. Now I'll, I'll, I'll add that to the queue. So next time I don't know what I'm drinking, I'll grab a Modelo. Yeah, it's although it's one of those annoying beers that has the foil wrapper on the on the top. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, why do why do beer companies do that? Why does anyone do that? I think Lowenbrow did that too, but I'm not. <laughs> I haven't thought about low and brown. I don't know how long, but. Oh, my God. There's... Yeah. All right. All well, right. let's let's start with the other beginning question. Where did you see this film first? I saw this film when it came out on video. So it's probably 88 or 89. And literally the video store clerk said, rent this. And I said, okay. And I took it home and I thought it was hilarious. I could not stop laughing. And it's not really a laugh out loud type of movie. But for whatever reason, my my high school brain, it just found it really funny. And I ended up showing it to a bunch of my friends. And some of them were like, you're out of your mind. This, this movie's not that good. And other people like totally got it and were, were into it. How about you? I saw it at a theater where I saw the majority of films from... 1984 up through the early 90s the marlboro theater that used to be on bay parkway here in brooklyn i spent so much time in that theater i remember i think i brought it up in, in other uh, other episodes of the podcast but i do do remember going there especially like in the the summer i'd go in and pay for one film and then just go to the bathroom after that and then sneak into all the other theaters and just <laughs> watch what was there or Rewatch something that I had seen three times already, but I liked, you know, that's how I saw, like, I saw Goonies and Gremlins like 12 times by doing that. <laughs> that's great. So what was your t initial take on the movie? I enjoyed it. I thought it was cool. Then I forgot about it. And then when it came out on VHS, at some point, one of the times, because I would also would spend so much time in the video store before the internet and IMDb, that's how you learned about stuff. You, you walking through the aisles and spending way too much time in the video store. But in any case, at some point, I was looking for something new or whatever. And I was like, oh, you know, I'll pick this up. And, and I rewatched it. And I was like, this is even better to me than when I first watched it. Oh, that's cool. So I got a funny story about this movie. When I was doing acting classes, because God knows why I was doing that, they said bring in screenplays. And so I went out and I bought the Raising Arizona screenplay book. And it has one of the funniest intros of any movie book I've ever read. It's the Coen Brothers and Sam Raimi and I believe Bruce Campbell. 
because they were all friends. Yeah. And Sam Raimi and Bruce Campbell are basically just making fun of the movie and telling them that things that happened in it couldn't happen. And then they start unloading on Evil Dead. It has nothing to do with the movie at all. It's just them being wise asses. And it's really funny. If you find a bookstore, if any still exist, look for that book. Don't buy it because it's, you know, it's just a screenplay. Just read the intro. It's really worth it. That's amazing. I was going to bring it up at some point just because it was interesting. This film is the second Coen Brothers film that they wrote and directed after Blood Simple. And this is 180 degrees from their first film. I mean, total turnaround. Between writing and directing Blood Simple and writing and directing this film, they worked with Sam Raimi and Bruce Campbell on Crime Wave, which came out between those two. Have you seen that film? I have not seen that, but I'll tell you something really funny. This week, I downloaded it. I found it somewhere on the hidden parts of the internet that you're not supposed to go to. And I was like, oh, I wanted to see this. So I have it in my possession. I just have never seen it yet. Have you seen it? I had read about this film for years, wanted to see it. And I forget what channel I was on. One of the nights, and this is in the last couple of months, I came across it. I think it's um, there's a streaming app called Tubi, T-U-B-I. Okay. I don't know if you're aware of it, but it's my new favorite place to go to because they have the weirdest shit on there, like the most obscure grindhouse or whatever. Or I, I found the two 19, late 70s, they had these one-hour variety specials like Legend of the Superheroes with Adam West's Batman and Shazam. Or whatever. I, I hadn't seen that. They had just bizarre shit. But they had... Crime wave, and I was like, "Oh, this is fucking great!" And I watched it. It is really weird, man. Like, it, it's <laughs> like it. It's very bizarre. I I was expecting to be like, "This is great." Did not think that it was great. And I love everybody involved. I love you know, love Bruce Campbell, love Sam Raimi. But this is really weird. Like, you need to watch it, and we need to talk about it because it's so bizarre how it misses the mark. The entire film. It's kind of. It's funny that they would bust on. And I'm sure that they were just playing on Raising Arizona because Crime Wave, there are similarities where Crime Wave is absolutely batshit crazy, right? Okay. And and the characters are cartoonish, just like this film, absolutely cartoonish characters, over the top. There are sequences in this film where, you know, I wrote in my notes, this movie is like a Preston Sturgis script directed by Sam Raimi. Like, <laughs> the the shot when the it's discovered that the that Nathan Jr. is gone. The the camera moves like a Sam Raimi evil dead shot of the camera is flying through the air, going over the lawn, going over statue, going up, you know, that kind of thing. I so, have that um, in my notes too, so <laughs> oh, we're jumping all around. It's funny that you brought up because I recently watched Crime Wave and it, and it's it's something that this would be a good actually would be a good double feature, although Raising Arizona is far better, far more rewatchable. I don't need to see Crime Wave again. <laughs> I'll always watch Raising Arizona. But I think we're jumping ahead. Why don't we start at the beginning, right? Let's start. Okay. So I want to say, like, this movie, the setup is so great. And it's got to be one of the longest pre-title sequences in a comedy film perhaps ever. Yeah, it's weird. 
have this whole setup of you, you meet H.I. McDonough. It's uses voiceover to introduce him. You see that he's being booked. And Edwina, played by Holly Hunter, is like, turn to the right and like taking his mug shots. And there's a lot of rep- repetition in the, in the beginning, um, repetition of him being booked, talking to her, start flirting with her, then going to jail, then him at jail and then getting out and then being booked again. And so this whole, the, I, don't, I, I tried to figure out how long it was. Maybe it's like 10 or 11 minutes. The whole beginning is a film unto itself. The whole, the first, before the credit scene, was, it, it establishes the characters. It establishes how they fall in love and get together. And then it also it, then it establishes that he wants to, to fly right and start a family with her. And then they find out they're infertile. And then they see the newscast that, the Arizona quintuplets have been born and hatched this plan to kidnap a baby because they have more than they can handle and it's not fair. And as they're loading up the car and then you hear the Carter Burwell score of the signature yodeling and then the the film starts. Yeah, it's really funny how long it goes on. When the title comes in of Raising Arizona, you're kind of like, what the hell? (laughs) I thought I was already in the movie at this point. So yeah, I mean, there's so much that I like in this film. I have so many notes of just things like, Oh, uh, you know, the be- love the beginning. I love the economy of storytelling in this film. They're able to communicate so much in, in so little time and in so few shots. I mean, in fact, there, there's a lot of, there's a lot of great bits in the film where it is. There are a lot of still shots in the film where, when in the pre-credit sequence, when, it shows that Holly Hunter's character, Ed, is so despondent and so depressed at learning that she is infertile. Then you have this high, high angle shot down on her, the wide shot of their bedroom. And there's the voiceover behind. It's explaining like she lost all interest in housekeeping and and being, you know, a police officer. And she's sitting on the bed, lifeless like a doll. And she's got one shoe from her uniform and her on one foot and her house slipper on the other. So the attention to detail in one still shot and Holly Hunter throughout the film, she often evokes a lot of information and emotion without doing a whole lot. She's very still for many scenes of the film. Yeah. I, yeah, I love that about her. She, I mean, she really pulled this off. I think a lot of actresses would have overplayed their hand on this, where she she kind of knew less was more. She didn't have to get hysterical. She just had to show that she was she was miserable. No, definitely, and you know everyone is great in this film, but Holly Hunter really really shines in this. And, and while I said that she has these moments of stillness and and what the reserve you brought up, but when she does decide to have her character react. It's also blows you away when when they when he kidnaps Nathan Jr. brings her to the car and she gives her the baby and they drive off and she's quiet for a second <laughs> and then she just fucking totally erupts with <laughs> crying like I mean just heartfelt elation crying and screaming I love him so much is fucking fantastic it makes that scene that's one of the few there's many scenes in the film that always make me really laugh just her instant breakdown and this outpouring is on the one hand very touching but it's so fucking funny it's great also remember the scene just before that where high comes back empty-handed and she's like locking the door and rolling up the window yeah (laughs) she's like get me a baby top 
Give me a baby, hi. I need me a baby. <laughs> One of the other scenes that I that I think is so inventive, inventive and hilarious, and I especially get a good belly laugh from it every time I see it, is after they kidnap Nathan Jr., they go to their trailer, and he makes them wait outside, and he sees there's a sign like, welcome home, son, or whatever, and, and, and H.I. runs into the trailer to make sure everything's just right before he... Uh, Ed brings in the baby and he goes into their bedroom. <laughs> and I he sees a porno. Yeah, he sees the porno mag, penthouse magazine, a nightstand, and shoves it under the mattress. And then he gives into temptation like instantly. It's like I, I, you know, you can see it in his face. I got to see it one time. And he pull whips the thing back out and he flips through it like a madman we flips through to what we presume to be his i guess his favorite photos or whatever and he has this nick cage like in heat moment where he's like, <laughs> like like where you <laughs> and then and then he he's like he brings himself and he forces himself he's like he's forced he's like oh he forces himself to shove the magazine back under this is a very special issue for him it seems <laughs> but that one bit not only not only does it reinforce the fact that in this a lot of this film is about high trying to combat his temptation to do to do evil or to be bad and uh, he's trying he's trying to be good but he's he's this film is really about him battling his demons both metaphorically and physically throughout yeah. the entire film oh totally and i mean you could see you could see Leonard Small's character as it's kind of the representation of him wanting to be the wild man. Him fighting with that character is like him finally succumbing. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself here, but finally well, giving in to like the mundane life. I have that in my notes as well. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So let's go, let's go back to where we were at uh, rather than jump ahead. So I have to say, I have to say this is one of the first movies I saw with Jonathan Goodman in it. And he just is hilarious in every scene that he's in. And William Forsythe, who I got to admit, I'm not a big fan of, but he works in this as Gail and Evel Snotes. Snote, yeah. I just love when they're explaining that they left prison because it the institution no longer held anything yeah. for them. At some point, he said something that this time really made me laugh. The line by Evel that had been stitches this time when I watched it was when he, he tells H.I. McDonough, Hi. You're young. You got your health. What you want with a job? That <laughs> <laughs> fucking killed me. I'm not even doing it justice. But the way he's just kind of like on the thing and, and when he's trying to explain to him why he's trying to go straight. It's so fucking funny. The movie is totally chock full and jam packed with memorable and endlessly quotable lines. And some of which that I've quoted since 1988, after I, you know, 87, <laughs> when I saw the film, uh, Nathan Arizona has a number of, of lines that's great, but the one I love is, one of the ones I love is, yeah, and a if a frog had wings, it wouldn't bump its ass a hopping. <laughs> I love that. I, I, It's not really as quotable, but I also think it's really funny when they ask him, what was your son wearing? I don't know, he had Yodas and shit. Nobody sleeps in this house naked. <laughs> like... <laughs> That, that's number two on my list. <laughs> By the way, another great line from really early pre-credits in the movie. When High is in his bunk in the jail and the prisoner ahead, on top of, you know, on the top bunk says, 
You know, when we didn't have Crawdaddy, he ate sand. You ate sand? We ate sand. Again, to- totally quotable. Another one I love is as he's re- at some point when he finally gets him to the t- into the temptation of trying to rob a convenience store when the baby and Ed are in the car and he's like, I got to go. Nathan needs some huggies. And he goes and she sees that he's robbing the place. And she's like, you son of a bitch. And she leaves. The thing always cracks me up when he, he has the, he has the, he, he's got the gun on the convenience store guy and he's got the, the, the huggies and he's got the pantyhose on his head. And he, and he looks at the window and he goes, He's trying to get the convenience store to hurry up with putting the money in bags. Like, can you hurry it up? I'm in Dutch with the wife. <laughs> <laughs> oh, one more thing. A new new thing that I watched it with Gina and this one line by Nathan Arizona, which didn't make didn't resonate as much as in the past as it did this time with me. That also is fucking hilarious. And I had Gina and Stitches. The rep- one one reporter asks Nathan Arizona, "Is it true he was abducted by aliens?" And the actor Trey Wilson plays Nathan Arizona, who's fucking great in this. He he just sincerely and pleadingly tells him, "Don't print that, son. If his mama reads that, she she'll lose all hope." <laughs> <laughs> Which is fucking fucking outrageously hilarious. It, it, that's the thing with this movie is. While it is crazy, I mean, it is a fucking live-action cartoon, this movie. But what makes it work and what makes it really funny is that everybody is playing it straight. Yeah. No, you're right. Everybody's playing their role as if it was like it was Shakespeare. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Well, yeah. there's no tongue-in-cheek here. They are sincere. Uh, And speaking of Shakespeare... You have to another thing that Gina pointed out, and she she pointed out how how poetic High McDonough is because there's this is 1987. The film takes place in 1987, and while I know that the dialect and manner of speaking was different, no one was really talking like H.I. McDonough in 1987. This is a (laughs) character unto himself. I don't think that there are a lot of people in Arizona that would say I I I came in through yon window there, like (laughs) right. Yeah, it, it's kind of funny because on the on the one hand, you know, he's not the sharpest pencil in the pack, but then he says things that are kind of profound, like especially in the voiceover. Definitely. It, sometimes life is hard on the small things and other shit. It's a really profound, as you said. I want to say that, as I said that I often quoted this film, I have a story that that is that involves you and Virginia. <laughs> I think and, I was about to bring up the same thing, but go ahead. And a baby. Okay, well, then I, then I will literally hand the mic to you and let you finish this since we're on the same page. Okay. So, Virginia and I have our second child, Alex. And <laughs> yeah, everything goes good. And Pat comes to visit in the hospital. <laughs> and he's checking out the baby. And he goes, oh, he's a little outlaw. He's got his little ally here. And Virginia was having, I don't know if it was the pregnancy hormones or what, but she was having none of that. She was like, he is not an outlaw. Like, totally ripped your head off. <laughs> oh, I, I'll read to you what I, what I, my notes was, 
In fact, I coded this film to you when I visited you in Virginia and the family at the hospital and Alex was born. I looked him and turned to you and said, he's a little outlaw. You can tell by that twinkle in his eye. And I was going to ask you if you remembered, but obviously you did. And I also wrote, Virginia was not amused. And that <laughs> makes total sense. I was a much younger man back then. So. I thought it was hilarious. I could not stop laughing. <laughs> I'm so glad because I I wanted to ask you if you remembered and my stupidity, but uh, I I don't regret it. I'm I, I still apologizing, Virginia. I don't regret it though. <laughs> no, no, I don't. I don't think you should regret it. I thought it was <laughs> I thought it was hilarious then. I think it's hilarious now. And you know what? You know the hell with it. I want my kid to be a little bit of an outlaw. So <laughs> agreed. Oh, that makes my day. All right. <laughs> But I, 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 I have in my notes, little bit of an outlaw, Pat story. <laughs> uh, and Virginia so did find it funny afterwards when she, uh, when she, like when we got home and I brought it up again, she was like, okay, that's fine. That's fine. Like, <laughs> yeah, she yeah. didn't hold a grudge. Uh, no, I know she didn't, but. But it was, I'll never forget that. Which is like, no, he's not. Like, she was not having it. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, so good. What else? Oh, we got to talk about Glenn. Okay. The boss that comes to visit. And his kids are just fucking nightmares. Oh, yeah. He's played by, um... Oh, what was that actor's name? He's uh... played by Stan McMurray as Glenn. And Francis McDormand plays his wife, Dot. Yep. And they're they're the psycho couple from hell. And their kids are literally the most destructive, insane children I've ever seen in a movie. It's pretty amazing. When they, they arrive they, they arrive at their house to visit, right? And, he, and you know, HI has has gotten a job at a machine, is it punching holes in sheet metal or whatever. Uh, Glenn is his foreman. And yeah, as soon as they open the door to them and they're talking and he's like, oh, I brought the kids of five kids and they're actively trying to break High's car. Yep. <laughs> and then once they're inside the house, everything that's going on, and, and again, fucking hilarious, that kid that stops and he yells at him and he turns around and he's just written fart and crayon on the wall and I have in my notes a theme throughout the film of what I call stills where the humor is just looking at, at a person or a thing like still and that, and that happens in that scene where the kid turns around and he's just totally like expressionless he's not trying to be over the top but he's just like what well, I just wrote fart I'm like it's funny and then you hear a crash or whatever and then I think Glenn says, I'm like, watch, you don't mind, you don't cut yourself there, Mordecai, which also kills me. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, the, the biblical names, the fact, I mean, like, if you wanted to create a scenario where Ty McDonough would want to run away from family life, you couldn't have created a better one. Yes, the film, as much as he's he's trying to do the right thing, he's trying to go to straight and narrow, and he's trying to be a family man, he's, and he's wrestling with all these things. But the film doesn't really paint family life in the no <laughs> in the best picture, which is fucking hilarious and on point. But um, it it's it's great. And I just I love the whole setup with Glenn. Just that he's 
he's just a jackass on so such a large level. And when he brings up the wife swapping thing, just hilarious. You could see High had to hit him. Like, that was absolutely justified. Sure. Absolutely. And then he couldn't tell his wife why, which I could understand. And the whole thing just was comedic gold. All the characters are amazing, and they're so they're so well defined. The Coen brothers managed to put these little details that really not only help define the character, but really, really are fucking funny. Glenn shows up again at the house after after he's broken his nose. Excuse me. Oh right, okay. And he tells he goes on and tells Hi that he and Dot know that they they fucking stole Nathan Jr. and all their kids are getting too big to cuddle. So if he knows what's good for them, they better give the baby to him and Dot or they're going to hand him over to the police. And he's like, now you're at my mercy. And so, and he has this ridiculous neck brace. And not only does he have a neck brace, but he has like a gross hand towel underneath it, I noticed. So he's got like a <laughs> towel around his neck, then this ridiculous neck brace. And, and he's trying to, he's scared of, H.I. He's like, don't come near me. But then he's trying to act tough from a distance. And he's like, well, yeah, now you're at my mercy. And the dude that he's trying to be tough and he goes to spit, but he's got the fucking neck brace on. So it's this ridiculous thing of him, like trying to spit to the side. Um, just little touches like that, that throughout, throughout the film, right before Glenn and Dot come to their trailer for their day together, there's a shot, a close up of him looking in the mirror, H.I., and he's using that weird long shoehorn thing to like slide his athletic white socked feet into like these <laughs> white laced leather slip on shoes. So bizarre. It's just it's stuff stuff like that that really that really stand out, that really help enrich the character and and the and the film. But Glenn is fucking he's terrific. He's awful character. His Polish jokes. And the fact that, but the movie also, they allow him to be, they show how stupid he is because he, he keeps messing up his Polish joke when he's telling him how many. Oh, yeah. How many, uh, yeah, what is it? It's like, how many, how many Polix, Polix does it take to screw in a light bulb because they're so stupid or something? Yeah. And like, it, it doesn't make any sense. He got the joke wrong and he's a jackass. He's total jackass. By the way, uh, anyone who ever said, does the Pope wear a funny hat, just should be shot. <laughs> I love Heisman's response to that. I guess it's kind of funny. Yeah. <laughs> no, the, yeah, the, the, the film's really great at evoking the horror of family and family life. I said, so going with the attention to detail, to bring it back, we had the, the sequence of them falling in love. They decided to steal the quintuplets. We have a hilarious sequence of H.I. McDonough in the Arizona house trying to steal the babies. And then they do get Nathan Jr. They drive off. Shortly after their home, you see Gail and Evel Snotes breaking out of jail through mud yeah. and arrive at their house. And also they're breaking, the way they break out of jail, it's like they're coming out of hell itself. Oh, absolutely. It's a couple of different things in one, because it is like they're breaking out of hell itself. But also, this movie has a theme throughout of motherhood and orphans, birth mothers, birth moms, foster moms, or substitute families. That sequence also is birth imagery, in my, you know, yeah. the sewer and muddy ground giving 
give birth, literally give birth to Gale and Evel Snows erupting in the rain. Uh, he comes through, he breaks through the hole, screaming. And then the entire time, and then he puts in, and he pulls out his brother by his boot upside down. They're like twins of evil that are born and they both, then they both scream. And that's how that scene ends. It is a birth scene. Yeah. That's a good point. I got more that they were coming out of hell, but yeah, I think that is a birth scene. You're right. I, I think it's both because there is this whole theme about demons and hell and Leonard Smalls. Our first introduction to Leonard Smalls is a nightmare by H.I. where he dreams of this lone biker, the apocalypse through, and he throws grenades as rabbits. He shoots lizards just passing by. A flower sets it aflame. He is just a demon born of hell. By the way, I got a great quote from Joel Cohen about Randall Tex Cobb, who played Leonard Smalls. Uh-huh. This was the quote. He's less an actor than a force of nature. I don't know if I'd rush headlong into employing him for a future film. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, I, I I read something under the when I was trying to look up for like trivia behind the scenes uh, on it and and I read that he was problematic, but he didn't know how to ride a motorcycle. Wow. <laughs> I and was wondering about mostly... that. <laughs> that's funny. I also, um, I read just not to get off topic a little bit, but, oh, I read that Nicolas Cage had lots of ideas and that they were basically ignored. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which doesn't surprise me at all. I think the only... Looking into it, I think the only thing that they used or that they that they, the the Coen brothers were on board with was what I read is that Nicolas Cage was inspired by or thought the character was like Woody Woodpecker. So that's why he has his hair the way he has to try to make it look like the plumes of Woody Woodpecker's. Oh, that's hair. interesting. OK, I didn't hear that. I did notice that his hair gets crazier as he's under more stress. That is true. Oh, good point. Yeah, that it gets to the point where by near the end of the movie, when Leonard Smalls is coming after him, it's just bizarre. It's it's all sprayed up and looking completely nuts. But it starts out kind of normal and then gets a little crazier and crazier. Awesome. Yeah. And then the the tattoo that he has, H.I. McDonough, and that you see that at the end of the film when they're fighting Leonard Smalls also has that tattoo. It looks like Woody Woodpecker, but it's actually modeled after there was a, a, there was an image called Mr. Horsepower, which is the cartoon mascot and logo of Clay Smith cams, which is an auto shop from 1931. So the tattoo is based on that. The, the only difference is in the actual Mr. Horsepower, the woodpecker is, has a cigar in his teeth and that's not in the in the tattoo, but there's huh. definitely these weird Woody Woodpecker inspirations in it. I feel the film uh, in my notes. I often bring up that the film is like a I didn't say Woody Woodpecker. I either Looney Tunes, but I also thought that it was it's kind of like a a live action Tex Avery cartoon to me. Yeah, I could totally see that. It's very yeah. Tex Avery like. Another line that I love from this movie. When uh, Gal and Evel Snotes is in the uh, mini mart 
And he's like, ooh, balloons. Do they blow up in funny shapes? Only if you think round is kind of funny. <laughs> yeah. Everything is repeated throughout the film. So there's always a callback, and that's uh, it's great. A couple of other things I noticed. When they finally do give the baby back, uh, spoilers, you know, they give the baby back. Nathan Arizona leaves the gun with the babies. I don't know if you caught that. <laughs> I did not guess. He pulls a gun on them, then realizes they're returning the baby. He puts it in the crib with all the other babies. <laughs> and I don't know if that was like accidental or if that was just, you know, we're, we're Americans. We love guns. We're just gun crazy. Nathan Arizona. Yeah, we're, we're jumping around. I know. I'm sorry. Another thing I want to talk about with attention to detail or, or amazing stuff. Hi and Ed get up and they're, they're, it's in the morning and Gail and Evan are already at their counter eating cereal. The amazing thing is that Gail is John Goodman plays Gail and he's he's eating cereal. I believe he's chewing gum and he's smoking a cigarette and he's <laughs> and he's delivering dialogue. I mean, it's pretty fucking impressive. <laughs> Yeah, that's not bad. I only noticed that they put an ungodly amount of sugar on their cereal. Literally, I think they each put two full tablespoons, just dump it in slowly as they're eating the cereal. Which I have to admit, I used to do as a little kid, being unsupervised. Of, co of course. <laughs> of course. There's so much to talk about in this film. I mean, let's let's unpack the the sequence that is just the most insane it's like dropping an actual looney tunes cartoon in the middle of an already already insanely layered farce is the sequence when as i said earlier when hi tells ed nathan needs some huggies and then he starts to re rob the convenience store it's fucking deliciously bonkers and fucking awesome on all levels after she leaves him there's an insane sequence of him running from the convenience store teenager, because everyone has yep. a fucking gun in this movie. Everyone <laughs> has a fucking gun. And everyone is more than happy to use it for any reason. The convenience store is shooting at him. Cops show up. He drops the fucking huggies that he stole, and he's booking through the street. And the sequence is, he loses the huggies, Ed drives off with them, and he's getting chased by shooting cops. Like I said, the convenience store clerk. And then there's that steady cam shot through the house is fucking amazing. Yep. And yeah. And then the dog. The dog. Oh, my God. That shot, that slow-mo close-up shot of the dog almost biting him in the face, leaping at him, and then his leash stops him at the last moment is Amazing. And then cross-cutting this all with Ed and Nathan Jr. in the car because she's deciding, like, okay, let's go back for daddy. And then how, you know, the movie keeps changing focus where it's it's on high, it's on cross-cutting between high and Edwina in the car. And then there's the, the pack of wild dogs because the one dog that almost bit him in the face does escape and then, uh, uh, like, assembles a posse that's after him. Yeah. And then, <laughs> and then he goes into... <laughs> And then Hi goes to a super, a different supermarket to try and get the Huggies. And the cops are after him shooting him. The the people who work at the convenience store, he's going down aisles. They're fucking shooting at him. It's fucking insane. I don't know how long the sequence goes on for several minutes. Highly kinetic, highly cartoonish. 
great. And he escapes the, the supermarket. Ed and Nathan Jr. arrive at the car. He gets in as they're driving along. And the first thing that happens is she fucking punches him in the face, which is great. Yep. <laughs> and, and then he notices the huggies that he dropped at the beginning of the chase. And he says the line that they used in the trailer. Well, it ain't Ozzy and Harriet. He opens the door and picks up the drop, the, the, the huggies that he dropped, which by the way, when you look at the movie, doesn't make sense because they open the door, the huggies are in front of the door, and then somehow he has the huggies, but whatever. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, at that sequ- point, I'm, I'm willing to give him some slack. Oh, absolutely. Slack. No, it's it's just, it's 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 great. It's just, that that sequence in itself is fucking fantastic. The whole movie is like a cartoon, but this one is really like a Looney Tunes cartoon dropped into the film. Yeah, it's pretty hilarious. And it, it is amazing. Just everyone has a gun. Everyone's shooting it. This movie is so layered. This time around, they say that the number three is quite significant in science, literature, arts, and comedy. The rule of three is vastly applied in comedy. And the reason why I bring it up is there's a lot of subtle stuff that it takes you many times to catch in this film. Going to the very beginning of the film again, when... Edwina is first taking the the mug shots of high. She's the turn to the right. You hear you constantly hear this deputy, and I only know that it's deputy because I had my subtitles on. You always hear someone off screen that is yelling instructions to Edwina. I don't know if you caught that. Yeah. Don't forget his right. And then she does. And then the second time he's he, he's going through the process with her and he's saying stuff. You hear that same person go, "Don't forget his fingers, Ed." But the thing that had Gina and I cracking up when we watched it is as she's getting married and she's like checking herself in the mirror, you hear the same guy, don't forget your bouquet. <laughs> so fucking great. The yeah. Callback. I, uh, and also the running gag throughout the entire film of everyone taking the Dr. Spock book. Oh, yeah. That's as hilarious. The in- as the instructions, like everyone who everyone who steals the baby steals the Dr. Spock book and each time it's it's the baby is kidnapped and the Dr. Spock is stolen it it gets more and more fucked up by the end of the film it's burnt it's battered it's been shot at but they bring it back and doesn't he say in the beginning I I got the instructions or he something does. he does okay that is hilarious all right so you want to hear some trivia about the movie sure okay Kevin Costner auditioned for the film Oh, that would have been I, a very different film. Yeah, I don't see that working. Also, Richard Jenkins, who probably nobody knows, but if you IMDb him, you've seen him in a million know. movies. Do you know oh, who yeah. he is? Oh yes, yeah. No, he uh, the last uh, he was in The Shape of Water. He's in. Yeah. Um, recently, I saw he's in a remake by Guillermo del Toro of Nightmare Alley. He's in Nightmare okay. Alley. He's been in tons of shit. Even if you even if you don't think you know him, you know him. As soon as you yeah. see his face, you go, oh, that guy. So he auditioned for this, and he auditioned for three other Coen Brothers movies and got never got the part for any of them and finally told his agent, I won't audition for Coen Brothers ever again. And they gave him a part without auditioning. <laughs> Wait, which film was he in? Uh, I think... 
think he was in Miller's Crossing. I could be wrong about that. Hmm. What the look that I mean, up. I, I think whatever movie he was in, he had a small part. But they finally, they finally were like, okay, we'll give him a part. So I don't know. I don't know how the movie would have worked with him as him as the lead. I don't know. I don't know if that would work. But I thought that was interesting. Here's something really interesting. Mayor Herbert Drinkwater of Scottsdale, Arizona. He proclaimed that the film had, quote, no redeeming social value and that it, quote, certainly isn't the image Arizona wants to project. <laughs> Amazing, because because this movie is about Arizona. Yeah, I just love that. It's just so out of, so out of left field. The other thing that I wanted to mention, and I thought this was hilarious, is in the end credits... It mentions, you know, thank, you know, you know, they use, do the usual, we thank the Parks Department, we thank these people, we thank the, we thank the state of Arizona, quote, a great place to raise a family, which was the motto at the time. On point. So good. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. So what else did you want to discuss that we, we skipped over? I just wanted to go on a little bit. I wanted to bring up about you know Barry Sonnenfeld's camera work in this film. Some of it, as I said earlier, was inspired by Sam Raimi, like the shot when we discover, or or actually, it's I believe it's H.I.'s imagining that Florence discovering that Nathan Jr. is gone. But the camera work is really it's very cartoony. It it continues to evoke a cartoon. In this, in the sequence when H.I. is trying to steal the a baby, the perspective changes. This movie is, you know, obviously this movie is supposed to be to, is being told from H.I.'s point of view. We start with we start and end, beginning, middle, end has voiceover from H.I. McDonough, and so it's subjective. But the movie at some points will shift its focus, so it will give you a perspective or a subjective viewpoint from the babies. In the kidnap sequence, the camera is floor level and there's subjective shots looking up at H.I. being nervous, trying to like console and rock one baby while another baby, the camera acting as a baby, is looking up at high and being low to the ground to, to follow the crawling babies and the visual joke of the bunch showing Florence, Arizona, holding Nathan Jr. when she comes to check out what they hear the all this noise going on and Nathan sends his wife up to check on him and when she does she's bouncing Nathan up and down and you can see that H.I. is hiding out on the ladder outside the window and you see that it's the baby's perspective and the joke is that you see it's the baby he's looking at but when she starts to rock him back up and down then it cuts to the baby perspective of him looking at high and the camera is bouncing up and down like it's the baby. Um, right. And the baby camera sequence is scored music that evokes Jaws theme to heighten the humor and illustrate to illustrate High's anxiety about the babies, which he later confesses is traumatic outright to Edwina when he explains why his first attempt to nab a baby failed because they were they were all over me. It was kind of horrifying, honey. Let me in. And that's when, as you said earlier, that she locks the door on him. But so and there's also a dog 
cam, dog cam because at some point what during the the great chase sequence following a pack of dogs we do see things from the dog's perspective and and also so while they're often they're kinetic with the camera work the thing that that i find interesting is something i brought up before is this the still shots this movie has a lot of stillness in it and the stillness is used to impart a lot of information and almost and also with editing sometimes almost an eisenstinian way where we can infer what's going on without anyone saying a word so i brought up the the one shot of edwina losing all interest in work and being depressed but there are many scenes of edwina being still or motionless to impart her mindset she's almost like a news strip character the way she's placed motionless and framed in many of them they're like single comic panels when the snotes figure out oh that's one other thing I want to say, I'm jumping all over the place, but everything everything is tied together, so it's it's hard. I apologize to everyone, especially Rex Reed. <laughs> we have to apologize to Rex Reed no we matter what. We have to apologize to Rex Reed. But the the battle between the Snotes and High is pretty is pretty hilarious as well. Oh, it's it's great. And also, again, you see that's when you see a subjective shot, like when they throw him. The the it's great it's kinetic, and when they throw him through that drywall wall and he falls and then you see the cameras on the the floor and you see gail's boot coming down and then the next shot you see that he's tied up it's it's great and also this movie as i said i was talking about stills being used to impart information big reveals are well actually let me finish with the with the stills how they're used for comedic sense so after that scene and then Edwina finds him and he's and she's despondent because now she's lost the baby. She sits on the frame, left side of the frame, and doesn't move. And H.I. McDonough, he's moving back in and out of the frame, changing things, talking about like, don't worry, we'll get it back, whatever. And then it ends up with him with the shotgun, like, let's go get him, let's go get Nathan Jr. But she has not, she doesn't say a word, she doesn't move. And that's that adds to the humor. Him moving and her not helps it. When Florence comes in to check what's going on with the babies after they've been crawling, you had the baby cam and all this craziness. She turns on the light and walks in. There's, it's funny because the shot you see a shot of all five babies sitting silently, not moving, still just sitting upright, staring at their mother. So it's a lot of still, and also actually taking photos is a motif in this film as well. You have all the photos that Ed takes of high in jail, the mug shots. Yeah, the hilarious first photo with the baby when they get home, and he's like, he's like, this is about to go off, hon. And she's like talking to him, like, oh, this is a big responsibility, and and he's waiting for the, the he's trying to take a photo with her and the baby and set it up, and they're waiting for the photo to go off, and it it conveys the dynamics and mindset of both Hi and Ed with the actual weight of the responsibility of now actually right. having a baby. <laughs> It, and the still shot is high, totally like fucking stress. And Ed is hopefully gazing at him, like clutching the baby. So using these snapshots to encapsulate an entire scene, it goes throughout. And I said the words of fart written in crayon, uh, it's a still shot. And also the last thing. So we've been going bouncing all around a place, but so the, the basic story is they steal the baby and he has problems with his boss wanting to take the baby and, or blackmailing them. And another example of a still, and it, not necessarily that it's just still, but 
when the, the scene ends is after H.I. defeats Leonard Smalls, right? After he, he confronts him and he he gets him with his own grenade and blows him up. There's a shot of Leonard Smalls' grown-up boot hitting the ground in slow-mo. <laughs> this is so fucked up, but so funny. And then shortly after you see the bronze baby shoes, because I don't know if you noticed that the oh, yeah. Smalls has those baby shoes that you assume are his because he tells Nathan Sr. when he goes to to see him and says, hey, I'm a bounty hunter. I can get your baby. And he's like, oh, the cops out. And he's like, it's very spaghetti Western influence sequence when he goes to see Nathan Sr. with the flourishes and close up of the cigar sliding in his hand and the match in the same and then the close up of slowly striking the match and him saying, you want to find an outlaw, you call an outlaw. You want to find a Dunkin' Donuts, you call a cop. He explains in that scene that that he was stolen and sold on the black market so that either you pay him $50,000 to find the baby or he's going to take the baby and sell him on the black market. So right. that bit leads to the end shot of him where his blown up foot or boot hits the ground and then his bronze baby shoes fall also and so next to it. And then you have you know, the, the alpha and the omega, the, the, the you know, birth. And death in the same frame in one still shot. It's just, if you're not thinking about it, it seems like a funny cartoon, Looney Tunes, Tex Avery film. But it's really got some profound, amazing shit in it like that. Oh, yeah. Totally. I also found it really interesting. I, I know this is like a, like compared to what you're talking about, it's probably pretty trivial. But I also found it interesting that, that High says sorry. Like he's... Yes. He's... He's genuinely, even though the guy was trying to kill him, he didn't really mean him any harm. Yes. I also, I have some themes or whatever, but since you brought it up, let's finish that. While while the movie, I think, is about a lot of different things, it's certainly about a man coming to terms with taking on responsibility and the anxiety of becoming a family man and putting it, battling his demons. There's a lot in this movie. It's very, it's very existentialist. There's a lot of primal screaming in this movie, and I bring it up because it's tied to this. The birth sequence of the Snoats and the man. When I'll go back to that. But speaking of to what you were bringing up with Smalls, Smalls is, is not only he's the Tasmanian devil in this Looney Tunes existentialist adventure. He's really he's sartorially made up to look like a furry, ferocious animal. He's got fur in his boots, his grime, his sweat, his stained teeth. Ed calls him an animal fascist when she screams at him, "Give me back my baby, you ward hog from hell." But in the the nightmare that introduces the character that comes from High, he says that he outwardly says that he feels that he had given birth to him, that he he made yeah. it happen. And I think a case can be made that this film is ultimately about H.I.'s anxiety about, as I said before, settling down to start a family and resist his primal and larcenous urges. I think this movie, to look at it from a film school paper perspective, this is totally traditional Freud personality theory. It's the battle between the id, represented by Leonard Smalls, the ego, which is represented by High and the superego, which is represented by Nathan Jr. And that's why we get subjective viewpoints, both from Nathan Jr. and High. When he's stealing the babies, or he's trying to, there's a shot of Nathan Jr. and he's looking at H.I. trying to get a baby from underneath the, the crib. And that shot is replicated when Smalls is fighting 
H.I., and he's trying to crawl underneath the car. It's the same shot. Yeah, so I wanted to a, mention that. That oh, You got to it before me. I'm okay. sorry. No, it's okay. Uh, yeah, you sense those things. But so there's a lot of, there's, in my opinion, if you want to write a paper, there's a lot of stuff in here that, that points to that while Smalls is seen by Edwina, because when they do see him, High says out loud, you see him too? Because he is representing the id. He is High's id. And he has to defeat him. And there are other examples of this link, like the tattoo, when he's fighting him, and he grabs his shirt. He sees that Smalls has the same woodpecker tattoo on his chest that he has on his arm. Now, he's not old enough to be his father, right? There's no right. talk of his family. So it could have been his brother, but I surmise that it's just that it is high. It is all his id impulses. And also, I watched this movie twice for this podcast. The second time I watched it, it really struck me because when High first meets Ed at the very beginning of the movie, when she first is taking his mug shot, he says, you're a flower, you are just a little desert flower. And in his first nightmare that gives birth to this Id Leonard Smalls, we see him blow up a rabbit, we see him shoot a lizard, and he causes a desert flower to ignite in flames just because he roared past it on his hell bike. Also, when he wakes from that nightmare, Ed tells him that Nathan just woke up from a nightmare as well. That's because you could make a case, as I said, Nathan Jr. is the superego. He's the, the conscience. And also the influence of Nathan Jr. on the snotes, everybody, everybody who comes into contact with the baby falls instantly in love, wants to be a better person and wants to help. Nathan Jr. changes their their nature. Yeah, that's a good point. And I, I totally forgot about the Snotes. Their scene where they're, they, they of course, leave him behind because they're fuck-ups. Um, yeah. But they're, they're, like, they're distraught by it. When Ed and uh, High run into them, they're begging them to be taken along. Yes, yeah. Uh, well, first of all, I want to say, when I said that this running motif of primal screaming, when they discover that they don't have the baby, they're screaming for like five minutes. It feels yeah. like. But the, but the thing that kills me and it always does is they're screaming and they're screaming and they're, they're very sincere. But, but what really always makes me laugh is when John Goodwin starts punching the roof of the car and then punching the, the dashboard, I fucking lose it. I it's fucking great. That primal, screaming which ties the whole baby motif and all other stuff but they shout out which also goes with the motherhood theme they shout out let us go let us come with you it's our baby too right also in that sequence that i talked about before where john goodman is chewing the gum eating the cereal and smoking a cigarette i think they're like oh why don't you breastfeed the baby and they tell ed that Evel says, ma'am, you don't breastfeed him. He'll hate you for it later. That's why we wound up in prison. And Gail's like, anyway, that's what Doc Schwartz says. So, <laughs> Gail, so Gail and Evel explain to her that they're, that because how their mother not nursing them made them into criminals. So fucking ridiculous. So good. I also love when they're in group therapy and Gail says something about like, sometimes your career has to come first. Oh, <laughs> So the has to come before family. <laughs> so, oh, it's so good. 
All of it's so good. And the connections to other uh, I just wanted to finish this whole thing with about the, the making a case about the id ego and super ego. I just this just today I I was listening to the score by Carter Burbo and his score supports this theory because I know first of all, let's give a shout out to his score because it does a lot to set the tone for this deliciously eccentric picture. The musical theme for Leonard Smalls, which is called He Was Horrible on the soundtrack. It's the same. It's arranged differently for the end dream sequence, but it's the same tune. It's the same music. So the the music used for which is on the soundtrack labeled "Dream of the Future." The music is the same for Smalls and H.I. because they are different facets of the same person. Smalls wow. is arranged to be ominous and operatic, and the same and the same tune is then used to be light and hopeful for high's dream of the future wow i didn't catch that at all but that's great the soundtrack is fantastic it really fits the movie yeah it's so much fun it's fucking great so overall great movie lots of little interesting things to think about just wanted to talk a little bit about the making of the script took three and a half months to write it cost two million to make took 10 weeks to shoot and took in $29.1 million worldwide. Not bad for $2 million investment. Not bad at all. And the Coen brothers were quoted as saying, it's the last movie that made us money. <laughs> I don't know if that's true or not, but I think that's pretty funny. So good. I had a few things. I wanted to point out that Joel and Ethan were just 29 and 32, respectively, when this hit theaters. Wow. And T.J. Kuhn, who played Little Nathan Jr. in the film, retired from film after just doing two commercials after after it. And he's a real estate agent in Phoenix, Arizona, and is now 37. Huh. Okay. So this movie, I said before, I'm a huge Preston Sturgis fan. I don't, I don't know if you like Preston Sturgis or what yes, you've watched. Okay, go. They obviously really love Preston Sturges. I think this movie is heavily influenced by Preston Sturges. I think that Hudsucker Proxy is very much a Preston Sturges. All the the stuff when they're at the farmer's bank, when they're like, freeze, get on the ground. It's like, well, what is it, son? Do you want us to freeze or get on the ground? Totally Preston Sturges characters. Yeah, I could see that. And so Hudsucker Proxy and Oh Brother, Where Out Thou, obviously, is that's a reference to a Preston Sturges film that's from Sullivan's Travels. That's the name of the film that Joel McRae, playing director in the film, that's the movie he wants to make. And I don't know if you saw Hail Caesar, but I, I would count Hail Caesar as a Preston Sturges Coen Brothers film as well. I have not seen Hail Caesar. Oh, it's good. It's very good. I didn't realize, I didn't catch it. So I read about this, and I wish I would have caught it on my own, but I didn't. So they want to do Hud, Hudsucker Proxy as their next film after Blood Simple, but they want to, but the budget they thought was required was still too high, so it took them years to get to it. However, in this film, the idea did seep into Raising Arizona because apparently H.I.'s work uniform says that he works for Hudsucker Industries. Oh, Really? Yeah, which I never caught before. I read about that, and I was floored. Yeah, that's pretty hard to catch. So when the movie came out, a lot of uh, a lot of high profile critics just either they 
didn't think it was much of anything. It, it took a while. It was a slow burn from this movie. Now uh, I think it's considered total classic, but at the time it did okay. I, I looked at the top 1987 movies on thenumbers.com, and this movie is number 48 for that year. The first, okay. the number one was uh, Beverly Hills Cop 2. Raising Arizona is number 48, which made me laugh. It's below Ernest Goes to Camp. <laughs> okay. But above Revenge of the Nerds, too. Thank you, America. Well, you know, there's always that. <laughs> we, You know, they could always say, hey, we made Revenge of the Mer- Nerds money. Right. But as of today, I think the movie, mostly people love it. It's got a 7.3 out of a 10 rating on IMDb. It's certified fresh with 90%, 92% tomato meter and 85% audience score. And the film ranks 31st on the American Film Institute 100 Years, 100 Laughs list. Cool. It's a great movie. I'm glad that it's got some recognition. Yeah. Also, the poster tagline for this movie, much like I complained about Thelma, it's like someone said, get a life, and they did. And you're like, what the fuck? This movie has something not as bad as that, but close. The the tagline for this, the poster, and it's on my DVD I'm staring at, is Raising Arizona, a comedy beyond belief. What? Like, what the fucking hell? It was like, the, the, it was lazy marketing beyond belief. That's how you describe this movie? They didn't know what to do with it. It's like, ah. I don't know how to describe it. Well, it's just beyond belief. <laughs> That's ridiculous. Any any closing thoughts for the film? No, just that I think it's it's a great movie. I think everybody should watch it. It's got so many high high points to it. Yeah, that's about it. Would I recommend this movie? Absolutely. This film is a bona fide cult classic. It's infinitely rewatchable. It's always funny. Everything is top-notch. The writing, acting, directing, cinematography, editing, music. There's so many quotable lines. It's unfair to other films. I'm a fan of the Coens, and I own many of their films. But this and Miller's Crossing might be my Desert Island picks. Controversial? I know. I love Lebowski, and I love Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And a recent one I love is Hail Caesar. Totally, totally recommend it if you haven't seen it. Cool, so I think the music's playing. That means we're out of time. I want to uh, say thank you. Next time, we are doing a really interesting movie, Sorcerer. So I'm very excited. Very excited for this. I think both have seen this maybe once. I'm looking forward to watching it again. Yep, and if you wonder why I haven't, why I haven't heard of this movie, it's because it came out the same week as Star Wars. Not fair. Nope. Not fair. Great. Awesome. Well, thank you, everyone. See you next time. Thank you. Check us out on Instagram. We're the Cinephiliac Lounge.